Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. You know, just because a medical record doesn't mention low back pain doesn't mean your client didn't have low back pain. Uh, you need to find out the truth. Go to the source. Please rise. Court is now in session. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, we are having a little bit of technical difficulty getting on here, but I think we've got it worked out. That's right. Our our producer's email went to my junk folder, but that is no reflection of how I feel about him or his work. That's right. <laughs> exactly. We know Raz is way more important. <laughs> so true. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? You know, I can't uh, can't complain. I was just uh, telling our guests that uh, today is the last day of school for my girls, so I think they're pretty happy about that. So are they doing one of those like virtual graduations or like a drive-through graduation? I don't I don't think so. I mean, my my younger daughter's graduating from eighth grade and they her school did some sort of slideshow uh, with, you know, like, you know, her pictures growing up. But uh, we I, I asked her if she wanted to do like a little graduation we could do at home and she didn't seem interested in that. Yeah, I think graduations are so boring. I didn't even want to go to my own from like college or law school. I mean, I, just, I told I told her I had two hours worth of remarks for her graduation. I'm said, sure you do. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why she wasn't interested. Um, well, let me uh, let me introduce introduce our uh, our two guests today, two uh, fantastic trial lawyers from out in Los Angeles. Uh, I want to say welcome to John Teller and Daniel DeSantis. How are you guys doing? Good. Thanks for having us. We appreciate being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. We're we're uh, excited to have you guys on, and uh, and you know, and we'll talk about this case in a second. But I I saw that the verdict here is on March third, two thousand twenty. So I'm thinking this might have been the last trial that was in L.A. Yeah, we were definitely one of the last ones being tried. <laughs> were, were, were you uh, were you scrambling to get things finished up because uh, were they starting to close things down by that point? Uh, no, we, we were good. It was probably just a couple days after, maybe a week after, where things started really starting to get shut down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I you know, it, it, it'd be nice if we can get our, our trial courts going again, but uh, at least in Georgia, I'm not sure when that's going to happen. It's still going to take uh, a few months. They're talking about virtual jury selection out here in Los Angeles. Yeah, that'll be interesting. Um, and I guess, I don't know if everybody saw, but there was a, a summary trial in Texas and uh, I guess one of the, uh, jurors got up and took a telephone call in the middle of the case. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> Which I get when you do it by, uh, do it by zoom. I think that's, uh, that's bound to happen. Yeah. Um, well, well guys, let me, uh, let me tell our listeners a little bit about you. Um, first of all, I should say both of you are at the Wilshire law firm in Los Angeles, California, and you can look up John and Daniel at, uh, Wilshire, W I L S H I R E law firm.com. Uh, and John, I'll start with you. So John, uh, tellers, uh, had just a number of top trial verdicts. I think I saw John on your, uh, on your website that you had had top verdicts uh, for maybe the past four or five years uh, listed. So that's an impressive record. Uh, you mainly uh, specialize in spinal cord and brain injury cases, as well as other catastrophic injuries. Um, have had, like I said, a number of, of great trial results. Uh, have been named as a Southern California rising star. Have been named by the National Trial Lawyers as a 40 under 40. Uh, and um, and just uh, have had a, a great uh, um, a great career so far. So, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. And, and Daniel, I, I, I don't want to undersell you. You've also had your own, uh, uh, grouping of nice verdicts and, uh, have been named as a super lawyer rising star, uh, for 2018 and 2019. Uh, you were also, uh, nominated for the consumer attorneys association of Los Angeles rising stars award, uh, and are a graduate of the plane of trial Academy, uh, from the Consumer Attorneys Association of Los Angeles, and and I saw both of you do a, a lot of uh, charitable charitable work, especially with your trial lawyer organizations out there. So uh, so that's fantastic as well. So uh, so again, welcome guys. Thanks for having us. Um, well, this case that we're talking about, um, and and Yvonne, we've done a, a couple of these, but this is a. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm not trying to undersell this case at all, but this is a good old fashioned, straight up 
car wreck case. I mean, it's it was a rearing collision. Uh, and we've talked about um, how in, in other cases, uh, the defense uh, admits liability. And, and so, of course, that, you know, from one standpoint and to the average person, they might think, great, the, the defense is admitting that this is their uh, responsibility. But um, that's where their agreement with, uh, with John and Daniel ended, because it seemed like they, uh, they fought on just about everything else, every other aspect of the case. Um, but the name of the case is uh, Belinda Stewart versus Michelle Wake. It was tried in the Superior Court of Los Angeles County. Uh, as I said, the verdict came out on March 3rd, 2020, uh, and it Im- involved a rearing collision where Miss um, Wake ran into the back of uh, Miss Stewart. And there was some uh, uh, um, disagreement, I should say, over what she might have been doing, whether or not she was on her cell phone. Uh, but the case resulted in a $1,382,000 verdict on behalf of, uh, of Miss Stewart. And um, it really came down to, it, it seems like that there was... Um, Ms. Stewart was, was uh, saying that she had suffered some back injury, mainly low back injury, had some nerve ir- irritation and discompression, and um, had had three surgeries because of that. And basically, the defense was contesting uh, whether or not she was that injured uh, and whether or not she needed the surgeries at all, whether or not the surgeries were, were necessary. Um, and, and, and our, our favorite that comes up all the time, no matter what, that there was some sort of pre-existing or degenerative right. condition. Yes, yes, exactly. Exactly. So, um, so anyways, I mean, you know, like I said, in a case like this where they admit liability, um, you think that that's, uh, it sounds like that's great that they're admitting liability, but a, a big reason why they do it is because they don't want to talk about the conduct of their own client. Uh, they don't want to um, uh, focus on what happened in the collision. They want to attack the plaintiff and they want to try and get a discount off of um, uh, off of the uh, value of the case and uh, and to keep the the value of the case down, so that can um, that can you know give you a whole set of uh, a, a whole set of other problems when you're preparing a case for trial. So so John and Daniel, just starting from that standpoint, when you uh, have a case where the defense has admitted liability, um, it, it it sounds easier than it actually is because they they then fight on everything else. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, you know, she, the defendant rear-ended our client in the case. So, you know, it would have been silly for them not to admit liability. Um, uh, In the defendant's deposition when we took it, she uh, was not sure whether she was on her cell phone or not. Um, So we obviously wanted to use that and the defense knew that that testimony was going to be very helpful for us if they didn't admit liability. So uh, obviously they uh, wanted to seem like the good guy. The defense attorney wanted to try to sound like a good guy to the jury by quote unquote admitting liability. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the biggest challenge with the case, I guess, was really, uh, with regard to the lower back, the lumbar spine injury, there was nothing in the medical records from the first, uh, three or four doctors she saw that diagnosed her with lumbar radiculopathy. So that was the defense's whole theory of the case is that she only started complaining about lumbar spine pain about eight to 10 months after the collision. Uh, She didn't go to the hospital after the collision at all. Um, And she continued to work full time as a nurse uh, on 12 hour shifts, you know, standing up on 12 hour shifts. So they were suggesting that it was her, you know, walking around and being a nurse, being on her feet the whole time that really caused her back pain. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I noticed that when I, you know, when I was reading through the transcripts, it, uh, you know, it, it it did strike me as, as, as not the easiest case, because as you said, she didn't uh, go to the emergency room and I think it took her about four or five days and she went to a chiropractor first. Um, and then it didn't seem that there was many complaints about low back pain, which was the main uh, injury at issue. That's where she had had her surgeries done on, uh, I think it was L2, L3 and L3, L4. Um, but, um, and then, and then the fact that she was a, uh, she was a traveling nurse and that she was basically not only, uh, you know, doing all of her uh, shifts, but she was actually working overtime, it seemed like. So, th- so those, cause some problems when you're trying to present a, a damages case. 
Most definitely. Most definitely. Just going back briefly about the defense looking like the good guys by admitting liability. Um, in this case, the defense lawyer would also stand up and tell the jury, you know, we've admitted fault and we're here because plaintiff is being so unreasonable regarding what she alleges her damages are. And we're only here essentially because of the greedy plaintiff. Right. Yeah. Well, and speaking of unreasonable, we've we've all had clients who are in this situation where they get hurt, but they're not usually not financially in a situation where they can, number one, just, you know, go to as many doctors as they want to go to. I mean, even if you have insurance, emergency room visits and stuff are expensive. But then on top of that, not everybody, um, depending on what their work situation is, either because of work demands or financial demands, they can't just stop working even though they're in pain, you know? And so it's just, it seems like you kind of can't win in that scenario because no matter what, they were questioning the medical treatment that she did get. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that, but they're also attacking her for not getting medical treatment fast enough. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And we discussed that in closing, how we, we lose both ways. Um, not enough medical care, too much medical care. She's not that injured, but she continued working. It's a, it's a lose lose with the defense. Yeah, exactly. And I, I always kind of wonder about this because she, uh, and you know, she had had some epidurals and there, there was some argument about how expensive those were and whether or not they were too expensive. And then they, um, um, she had had three surgeries and at least the, the, from what I could tell, at least the first two didn't seem like they were all that effective in alleviating her pain. And so she, she ultimately had to get a, a third surgery, uh, that, uh, that put hardware in her back, had a, had a fusion, uh, in there. Um, and so, um, so, I mean, that, that causes, uh, uh, you know, all kinds of problems as far as, um, I'm sorry, I, I lost my track of thought there. So I'm getting back on now. Now I know where now I know where I was going. They brought in these doctors. They, they brought in these doctors uh, to basically say that all these surgeries were unnecessary. And I, it always, I always wonder. I mean, I guess the defense has to do that because they feel like they've got to uh, defend the case in whatever way they can. But I always wonder about you know who thinks it's a good idea to go and try and make some money by letting somebody you know, operate on you and cut on you and, and, you know, put you under anesthesia and, you know, possibly put your life at risk if something should go wrong. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's why, you know, it's typically I always ask the doctors, I mean, there's all these serious risks with regard to surgery, like paralysis, you know, and death, of course. So really nobody I know would ever undergo a surgery just for fun, just to potentially get money out of a lawsuit. I think that's lost on some defense attorneys that are a little bit jaded and have done, you know, so many times that uh, they think that that argument of, oh, she's just, you know, undergoing surgeries to make a lot of money is going to go someplace. But, you know, with a jury who has no experience in spine injuries and surgeries, when they hear, oh, my goodness, she, you know, had her back literally opened up and parts of her spine removed. Uh, they realize exactly what you said. No one would do that uh, unless they're seriously in pain. Yeah, and, and sorry, just go ahead, Daniel. Briefly, another way to undercut the defense in that regard also is by asking the defense doctors whether or not the plaintiff's surgeons committed medical malpractice by moving right. forward with the surgeries. And of course, they always say, "No, we're not here to opine on that." Right, right, exactly. Right, and that makes me crazy too because as we all know, establishing a medical malpractice case as a plaintiff is very hard and it drives me crazy when it's sort of used as a defense, you know, with without any of the hurdles that we have to go through when bringing a case like that. Yeah, yep. yeah. definitely. Yeah, and it, it also gets you sort of frustrated when, you know, your client, it, it seemed to me, uh, and, and I read part of her, um, I read part of her testimony, and I was going to ask you guys about this later, about this procedure that you have in California, where I guess the defense can call her on direct in their case. And then, I mean, at least the way it was listed on the transcript was that they were directing her and you were cross-examining her. I thought that was interesting. But, um, but you know, the fact that she, you know, if, if she hadn't gone back to work, um, they would have used that against her. She goes back to work. She's trying to do the best she can. She's trying to get on with her life. She's trying to, you know, basically do everything but go to surgery because it sounded like she did some acupuncture. Uh, then she did, um, 
uh, you know, chiropractic care before she goes and then she gets these epidural shots. I mean, so really it just sounded like somebody who didn't want to have to deal with an injury at all until it just got to a point where she just couldn't go on anymore. But of course they, you know, used everything they could to argue that that, that meant that she was faking or, I mean, they wouldn't quite come out and say she was faking, but they made it sound like she was. Exactly. And that's a classic defense technique is to make it sound like the plaintiff is not credible and faking her injuries. And, uh, you know, in, in this case, uh, when you talk about multiple surgeries, I mean, what really happened was that she tried to do a less invasive procedure before going forward with the fusion of completely removing the disc in her spine. And, you know, it's difficult to hear from a doctor, hey, I might need a remove literally an entire disc and put in metal in your spine uh it, it makes it it is reasonable realistically that hey let's try something a little bit less invasive just cut a couple things here and there and hopefully that will leave the pain unfortunately for our client here it didn't and then that's why ultimately she did proceed with the more um intrusive uh surgery of the fusion Right. I, I wanted to ask, did the um, did the defendant take the stand and testify, um, you know, and, and, and what was that? If she did, what was that like? No, the defendant never testified. And that was obviously a smart decision by the defense attorney, because otherwise we would have probably brought up the, you know, or tried to bring up the phone issue and uh, the fact that she was obviously not paying attention at all and, you know, kind of vilify the defendant a little bit more. So that was actually a smart decision that the defense attorney made. Go, going back to uh, your question about you know the plaintiff being called by the defendant. So what happened was actually we called the plaintiff in our case in chief and the defense attorney got to cross-examine her uh, then. And then when we uh, you know finished up and it moved over to the defense's case in chief, um, we weren't actually expecting them to call the plaintiff. They never even told us they were. Um, but out of nowhere, the defense attorney stood up and said, all right, now I want to call the plaintiff. In our case, uh, we asked the judge to not allow it, but the judge uh, permitted him to do so. So he got a second bite at uh, asking our client questions. And, and he scored some major punches. Um, she was the last witness in the case. And John will tell you what happened during that cross-examination of the clients and what went back into the evidence as evidence into the jury room. Yeah. What, yeah. What happened? I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear. <laughs> so, yeah. So going back to that issue of, of the lack of mention of the lumbar spine radiculopathy pain from the earlier doctors, one of the earlier doctors she saw who happened to also be an orthopedic spine surgeon, uh, she filled out one of those typical forms you have when you're waiting in a doctor's office and it said, you know, mark an X where the pain is. And uh, the X that she marked was near her neck because at that time, immediately after the collision, the first doctor she saw, her neck was, you know, pretty significant uh, in terms of her pain. Um, so she hadn't marked the X on her lower back, but the diagram where the buttocks is almost looked like uh, an X, but it was really just the, the buttocks of the diagram. Okay. And uh, she uh, tried to mention that, no, she thought maybe there was an X there. So the defense definitely got some points there um, from her on that issue. You know, it's interesting because, you know, we're just reading a transcript and I read that part of the transcript and I was like, well, it sounds like she did mark her, her low back. Uh, but so when you, uh, when you actually look at the document, it, it, it didn't look like she had marked that, uh, that area. Yeah. The, the thing is, is that, you know, this collision occurred all the way back in 2017, I believe. And that doctor visit was in 2017. So, you know, from her perspective, she remembers, Hey, she's always had back pain and it was pretty bad. Um, and when you're, you know, nervous on the stand, uh, and you know, someone's asking you about the back pain and basically the whole trial suggesting that you're lying about your back pain and she knows in her mind, Hey, I've had this back pain. Um, she kind of got into a little bit of our argument back and forth with the defense attorney. Um, so, you know, that probably wasn't the best, uh, move on her part, but you know, that, that happens sometimes. 
All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, stay in the life videos, stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology-based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with the demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So, yeah. So what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTSAtlanta.com. Legal technology services. Uh, give them a try. Yeah, it's I think sometimes we forget. I mean, this happened to me recently where I had just sort of I had done a lot of, you know, preparation with my clients in terms of what to expect in a in a this was a deposition, not trial, but um you know, and sort of covered everything that they might be asked about and show them the documents and remind, you know, about what they might see. And then you know, they still in their depositions were very, they were like completely different people than the people that I knew and had met with many times. And I think it's easy for us to forget because we do it all the time that that is it, depositions trial. That's a very intimidating setting. They're hearing these arguments between lawyers and that's can be scary. And so I think it's, it's easy for that to happen and for easy, easy for us to forget that they can just be you know, that stuff under pressure, stuff can just go out of your brain. You can forget things you knew five seconds before. Yeah, it's very important that plaintiffs and our clients don't advocate the case for themselves right. on behalf of themselves. They should let us, their lawyers, do the advocating for them. Their job is to just tell the truth. Right, exactly. And I think that goes to damages, too, because I always tell my clients, that, you know, I, I I mean, I want them to tell what happened to them. I want them to tell what they go through. But I like to get in damages evidence as it, so it looked like you guys did, too, uh, by bringing in, you know, before and after friends and family and, and people who know them who can say, yeah, they don't really want to talk about how bad their injuries are. But you know, let me tell you what I really see. And, and, and I noticed that you guys did that in this case and had several. Uh, what, what we what we call before and after witnesses. How how did uh, how did those witnesses do? So, so that was actually the trickiest part about the case for us because, as you say, you know, usually those are our strongest witnesses, and I want as many before and after uh, witnesses that I can come up with. Uh, and in this case, um, our client she wasn't married. Uh, she had one kid in Los Angeles. Um, she didn't really have any friends that saw her and were with her before the surgery and after the surgery or before the collision and after the collision. So all we were left with was her son who were, was able to testify. But then we found a lady that worked with her as a nurse uh, you know, back in 2010, many years ago, she didn't know about our client after the, this collision or after the surgery. But, you know, again, those witnesses are so important. So I said, if that's all we got, we'll right. go with her. Um, I wish we had more. I bet if we had more of those, you know, non-economic damage type of witnesses, 
I would bet the verdict would even be a lot higher, but you know, you got to work with what you have and yeah. we did a pretty good job. A, a fun part about the trial with the damage witness of, of her son. Um, he was a very serious guy. He's an ex Marine veteran. Um, and, but you know, we made it clear to him. We were calling him to the stand as Belinda Stewart's son, Belinda Stewart's loving son and not this Marine veteran. Um, and prior before in the trial, Belinda Stewart, the plaintiff testified that as a result of the collision and her injury, she can no longer wear heels, um, which is important, um, and meaningful for her. And I'm doing the direct of the damage witness, her son. And I put up a photo of him and his mom dancing at his wedding before the impact. And it's kind of cuts off at her heel. I mean, at her knee. And on a whim, you know how you just feel things during right. examination? Yeah. On a whim, I just said, and by the way, Justin, was your mom wearing heels at your wedding this night? And he said, yes. And it was like one of those moments where you can kind of feel the goosebumps. Right. I thought that was pretty good. Uh, yeah, I was thinking, yeah, I mean, I guess I hadn't really thought about that, John, what you were saying about finding before and after witnesses, but I guess part of her job being a traveling nurse probably means she doesn't have many, I guess, long-term relationships because she uh, sounds like she moves around the country. Is that right? Yeah, she moved uh, around quite a bit. Even in California, she was you know, down in San Diego, went up to Fresno, Oakland, San Bernardino. She was all over the place. So uh, that was definitely a tricky situation for us. Right. Yeah. Well, and working like 50 hour weeks or something like, I don't think I would be super social most of the time. <laughs> I mean, I work much more than that, Steve, yeah. <laughs> what but I'm you, just saying. <laughs> what were you suggesting there? <laughs> are, are you guys allowed mini openings? No, I, I saw you guys mention that. Is that something you do between, uh, before uh, voir dire? That was, yeah, it's something we do here, and it was actually very key to the case. I'll let John describe what he said in mini opening and how that helped so much in jury selection. Okay, yeah. I mean, we just, you know, told uh, the jury about the facts of the case, and I told them in mini openings, hey, we're going to be asking for millions of dollars um, up front so that, you know, they're not shocked by any sticker prices down the line. You don't want to, I've always learned that you don't want to <laughs> tell the jury the number uh, for the first time ever no. uh, in closing arguments. And then they get sticker shocked and they're like, holy cow, we would oh, yeah. never award, uh, you know, a million dollars or something like that. So uh, that was interesting. And we actually were able to get a lot of potential bad jurors off solely on that issue alone. Uh, this judge was uh, quite difficult on for cause challenges. So um, that key point was great to get jurors off. But what was very interesting is because we got so many jurors off uh, in the first panel of jurors because of that, when we the next day when we brought in a new panel, the judge instructed me that I was not allowed to tell the new panel that we were going to be asking for millions of dollars. <laughs> So uh, that was a kind of an odd situation. And uh, knowing yeah. that we would have some jurors that heard numbers previously and some jurors not hearing numbers, that was a little bit of a scary situation for us, but it ultimately worked out. The first panel was great, though. I think we got off like 15 jurors for cause. And then because none of, you know they all raised their hands, we can never award that amount of money. And then on the second panel, it was like, Two people for God. <laughs> right, right, exactly. You would, you would think that if it was a question th or an issue that the the answer to which was was having was resulting in a lot of jurors being struck for cause, you that you would think the opposite would be true about right. asking that question of the next panel. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Wow. You know, you know how judges are. They don't like to lose their jurors if they. Yeah. Can help it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Sorry, go ahead. No, I just was going to ask for the mini opening. Um, are there, so like, I guess, what are you permitted to do? do, you, do I guess both side gets, sides get to do one? Yeah, if, in California, I think it's a relatively new rule, probably that's come down in the last 
year, maybe year and a half that the code says that the judge shall allow the parties to do one if requested. Um, so I have found that, you know, it goes judge by judge in terms of what the court's going to allow us to say and not allow us to say. Um, but most judges say, you know, we're only going to give you, you know, two, maybe three minutes to give a general overview of the case. Don't go into very specific facts. You know, it's not your opening statement, it's a mini opening statement. Right. So that's kind of and then, how it works. Yeah. And then there's strategy involved in the mini opening. For example, you don't want to oversell your case in mini opening because all of your great jurors will be off for cause once the defense gets to stand right. up and yeah. start their questioning, right? Yeah. In turn, the defense always oversells their case in mini opening, at least in the trials we've done. And it really helps us because we're able to talk to the defense-minded jurors right away who say right. they have all these problems with our case because of what the defense attorney just said in mini opening. Pretty interesting. Yeah. You notice that too, like uh, the first few cases that I, that I tried, I was just there to help with, with Vordire and take down notes. But it, it would seem in those cases, the defense attorney seemed to be asking questions that like all the, like you can be reasonable about such and such, right? right? And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, we can. Like nobody's answering anything. And I'm like, mm -hmm. how is, how does this help? <laughs> like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> how, like it helps us. I'm like, I'm great with it. But like, how does it help them? <laughs> yeah, I guess when, now that you say mini opening like that, I mean, you, you can give a, just a, like a short over, factual overview uh, and I, I will tell you, I had one case, which was a product liability case, and um, the collision itself was my client's fault, but the we were, you know, alleging that the reason why she died was because of a defect in the vehicle. And so I, I was in a very conservative county, and I, I wanted to get people struck for cause, so I basically started off saying, you know, if you all knew that, you know, she ran the red light, and, uh, you know, and then uh, got killed because of it, and we're asking for millions of dollars, you know, how many people would think that was, you know, a ridiculous lawsuit and a bunch of them raise their hand and we got a whole bunch struck for cause. And the, the weird surreal thing for was that, you know, we had made that. And then, so when the defense came up, who was defending the car manufacturer, they were, they were like, our, our vehicle can still be a fault. You know I mean? Can still be defective. Right. And you all think that's, you know, in, like they were doing their own like sort of reverse of what we were doing. <laughs> I was like, this is the weirdest, uh, weirdest one here I've ever done. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, well, let's talk a little bit about the medicine. I just want to make sure everybody understands. So, so basically, um, you know, the, the, the big contention here was she initially had uh, complained of, of, of neck and, and I guess not low back pain, according to that record, but um, I guess neck and, and thoracic pain. Uh, and, and then um, she saw, a, I think, a, a chiropractor and then saw maybe a, an orthopedic surgeon who wasn't much help and goes into pain management. And then she finally gets to um, uh, two different surgeons who basically were able to give her some help through uh, both some epidurals and then and finally the surgeries that, had, that, um, that they had to do. So, but that seemed to be the, the crux of where the, the argument was in the case is the, the treatment that, that those two doctors gave. And then, of course, the defense experts coming in saying, all that was completely unnecessary. And, um, you know, so talk about, you know, how you uh, approach that as far as presenting the evidence of those, uh, the two doctors who sort of came into it, at least from, you know, reading, you know, a little bit later in the game, and then found that she needed, um, uh, th that she needed um, surgeries. And I, and I, you know, part of that is that I, I did notice in the crosses that you guys did, I thought you did a real good job of pointing out how they hadn't even used the MRIs, didn't look at the MRIs. And I think one of the doctors, you asked him and you said, um, would you go and do surgery without, or, you know, do you look at the MRI before going to do surgery? And the, the doctor was like, I sure hope you do, you know? And, and then of course they hadn't looked at the MRIs uh, before giving their opinions. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a lot of times in some of these cases that don't have, you know, huge uh, property damage, um, you'll have the defense come in and say, oh yeah, this, you know, the surgery was unnecessary. They look at the MRI, MRI just shows like a two millimeter, maybe a three millimeter disc protrusion. And they do that typical, oh, it's all degenerative disc condition. It's not really that bad. And they try to focus on the discs um, instead of everything else in the spine. 
Um, and that's why, you know, it's always good to, first of all, know how the spine works and talk to uh, neurosurgeons and orthopedic spine surgeons about the various components of the spine. But uh, when we have a situation like that, we try to focus on, all right, it's not only about the disc, but it's also about the nerves and how the nerves can get uh, compressed because it's really the nerves or most of the time it's the nerves that are causing that radiating pain, you know, the numbness and tingling and fiery pain down their legs. Um, so that's what, you know, we focused on really is we didn't really want to talk too much about, you know, the two or three millimeter disc protrusion. Uh, we decided that it was best. Uh, I went up to Fresno, uh, where her first surgeon was to get his testimony. And I took his videotape testimony, knowing that I, my game plan was to then play his testimony at trial. Uh, so we didn't call the actual surgeon. We just played his testimony and, and we asked him, Hey, you know, when you're making these diagnoses and decisions to recommend surgery or not, you know, what are you focusing on? And he talked about how, yeah, it's nerve compression and you want to see what's going on with the nerves. And obviously, you know, the way you can tell that is looking at an MRI. He also does some physical exam tests when the patient comes to him. And then what he sees when he literally opens up the patient uh, inside their spine themselves uh, when they're on the operating table. Uh, and the defense uh, doctor, you know, obviously doesn't do a lot of that. Number one, obviously, they never opened up the person's spine to see what's going on. Uh, the defense doctor wasn't around to do those physical exams uh, before the surgery to see the signs of nerve, nerve compression. But... Uh, Shockingly, uh, and this this is the biggest shock, honestly, it happens in so many cases, the defense attorneys don't send all the records and right. to their defense hire doctor. It makes no sense, yet it always happens. Right. And this defense doctor, you know, probably has hundreds of these defense medical exams, you know, getting paid great money by the insurance companies. So they're spitting out the same reports over and over and over again. And I ask it all the time in deposition testimony and in a trial, hey, you know, did you look at the actual images rather than just the report that said, you know, two to three, you know, inch, two to three millimeter disc protrusion. And he never looked at the MRI images itself. And that was just shocking. And I think, uh, as you pointed out, you know, that was a huge highlight for us, for the jury to show them, hey, this guy's obviously biased and completely uh, not credible for them to believe the defense hired doctor on those issues. Yeah. What, what we also did was we played the first surgeon's trial testimony via video, and then we actually called um, our client's second surgeon to the stand. And then we called our retained expert surgeon to the stand. And the way John and I framed that to the jury was, hey, this is the situation that we were in. We have a client who we represent that's in all this pain, who required these surgeries, and her doctors told her and are telling us that they were reasonable and appropriate and that she needed them. Then on the other hand, we had the defense saying, no, 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 this crash didn't cause the need for these surgeries. It wasn't reasonable and appropriate. So what we did, folks, is we went out and we hired an independent doctor to look at everything. And we gave him the medical records and the deposition transcripts and the MRIs and the defense medical examination reports and everything to come to a conclusion. And he gave us a call and he said, Daniel, John, the defense is totally wrong in this case. Belinda really needed these surgeries and they were totally reasonable and customary. And so we said, hey, doctor, if the defense continues denying responsibility and they force us to come to a trial, will you come in and tell the jury about your conclusions? And of course, he said yes. And then we tell the jury. So, folks, you're going to hear from this independent doctor in this case who reviewed everything. Right. Right. Exactly. I thought that was really effective. I mean, it almost sounded like I like when I was reading it in the transcript, I was like, wait, is this their expert? Because it really sounded like it was like just like an independent medical examination or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I was, I mean, you know, I've, I've obviously seen experts that make a lot of money, but the one, uh, I think it was the radiologist who you showed that he had made three and a half million dollars testifying for in, uh, in three years. I was like, man, he's, uh, that's just from his testifying. That didn't include his medical practice. That was, uh, that's a, a big number. 
He's a very well-known defense expert. Um, he's in a lot of trials. And in closing, you know, we point that out. We point out that if the defense really had a strong case um, and what they were saying was real, um, they would go out and find an objective expert that they know wouldn't be cross-examined on those issues. In other words, the defense knows that we know that their expert is a hired gun. Right. So why not go out and hire someone that's objective? The reason why they didn't do that, ladies and gentlemen, as we speak to them, is because they couldn't find that expert. So they had to go to their go-to guy. And Who we all pay? know, and they all and we all know this expert, their go-to guy, is gonna say what the defense needs him, him to say because he knows who butters his bread. Right. At at the tune of a thousand dollars an hour. So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah, and they make sure that you can be found too because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day. And they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, digital law marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. Talk a little bit about, I mean, so, you know, I, I you see this in a lot of cases, especially with anybody over the age of 40, uh, that they've always got degeneration in their spine. The defense is always going to point out that they got degeneration and that that can cause the pain. Talk about, and, and, and then your client, I think she was 57 years old and she uh, seemed to be uh, on the heavier side. Uh, and so the defense uh, was making a point about that, that she was, uh, she was uh, overweight. Um, talk about how you guys address those sort of standard uh, defenses in, in cases like this. So the degenerative disc condition, again, it's one of those things that I'm like shocked the defense still uses that argument and they haven't come up with something better, uh, especially with someone that has no back pain prior to a collision and only back pain after a collision. Um, so we just point out, you know, the truth to the jury is that, hey, and even the defense hired doctor will agree to most of these things is that, hey, listen, most of us, if not all of us, have degenerative disc condition. It's just an aging process and it doesn't necessarily cause pain. In fact, most of us, probably all of us talking right now, including you, Steve, have degenerative disc condition, but does well, that, that why, does why me and I, I mean, what, do I look older? <laughs> <laughs> I've been letting my beard grow since COVID. So it's definitely bringing out the, uh, the age in me. <laughs> and that doesn't mean that we all have back pain. So, uh, it, it's, the jury needs to believe that it's just a huge coincidence that she's had this degenerative disc condition the whole time. Um, and the back pain only started after this collision. And, and we all know that, you know, it's not a huge coincidence. It must have been this 
uh, vehicle collision that caused the back pain. So the, the degenerative condition uh, argument is weak, I find. And I think yeah. the another way to deal with it visually is showing the jury a timeline in your PowerPoint closing argument presentation where pre-incident, you have a vertical line in the timeline as to when the collision occurred. And before that, it's all green and no pre-existing issues, no back complaints. And then post-collision, it's all red. And then you put in vertical lines for every single doctor appointment right. per life post-collision. And you tell the jury the defense wants you to believe that these issues are from something before this collision. Right, right. It doesn't make any sense. And so they see it. They have something visual. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, related to the typical defenses, it, it sounds like to a certain extent, um, I, wa I wanted to talk about it. It sounded like a motion in limine based on kind of a sidebar conversation that I read in the transcript about um, – that it sounded like you all had filed that they didn't really have an alternative um, theory of causation for the injury, um, which I thought was really interesting. I was interested in, in kind of both what your motion in limine um, dealt with and then a little bit about it sounded like they got a little close to violating it um, at certain points. Yeah, they, I mean, they definitely violated it numerous times. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you know, that happens sometimes. But uh, basically, we didn't want then the defense to go in and have the jury speculate that, oh, her all her back pain is because she's overweight or because she's always on her feet working or because some prior incident prior to this collision um, that caused her back pain or even uh incident that occurred after this collision but before the surgeries we didn't want them to suggest that either um so i brought a motion eliminate to or we brought a motion eliminate to exclude those references and said hey you know the defense attorney can't just make these arguments to the jury without having evidence to it and uh you know i obviously took the depositions of the defense hired doctors and none of them testified to that so, you know, that was kind of game, set, and match uh, when I pointed out to the judge, hey, the defense doctors aren't going to say those things. They don't have any documents that say those things. So the defense attorney can't make those suggestions to the jury. And the judge just looked at the defense attorney and said, hey, yeah, do you have any testimony or documents that are going to support those arguments? And obviously the defense attorney couldn't give him a straight answer. Uh, and the judge said, yeah, you know, I'm excluding those types of things. Um, so I thought that was a great motion to eliminate that we were successful on. That was huge. Yeah. That was huge. Another thing that was huge, I've been very lucky to try um, a good amount of cases thus far in my career. And the, this was the first trial where John was able to get attorney-referred medical care excluded which was, you know, oh, yeah. monumental. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I think I think that type of motion eliminate is really just how you frame that issue and discuss it with the judge practically. Uh, I don't use the terms attorney referred. I don't use the word referred at all in my motion eliminate um, and just explain that, you know, basically number one, obviously the communications between me and my client are attorney client privilege communications. So the defense attorney can't ask my client about that on the stand because that would violate attorney client privilege. And then in terms of the doctors, uh, you just need to frame it in a way to uh, make it sound like it's not really referred treatment. It's just a individual that doesn't have the names of orthopedics and pain management doctors right. and needs help finding someone. So uh, they ask, you know, the attorney office if they know anybody and we give them a list of doctors they can go to and they pick one of those doctors, uh, you know, out of the five different choices that we present to them. So it's, it changes the whole dynamic of the case and that the argument on the, the classic argument of attorney referrals. Um, right completely around. 
I wanted to ask you about the uh, the the collision itself because it, it sounded like a bad collision, but then uh, then something you said in the podcast maybe made it sound like the the damage to the vehicle wasn't that bad. Um, but the way you described it is it hit her hard enough to push her up onto the sidewalk, uh, over the curb, you know, off the road, and then went on to hit a vehicle in in front of her. Um, was there was the did the photographs, I guess, of the of the uh, vehicles not show that much damage? Yeah. So if you looked at the actual photo of our client's vehicle, it didn't look like much at all. In fact, we didn't use those many photos that we had of her vehicle. Um, there, her vehicle did because she wasn't solely, you know, braking. I guess at the time of the crash, her vehicle moved up onto the curb a little bit to her right. Um, but, uh, we didn't want to use our client's own property damage photos, uh, too much because of that. The, the defendant's vehicle, yeah, they, you know, there was damage to her front bumper. And then the other vehicle that was in front of our client that got tapped, again, you couldn't really see any damage to his vehicle. And in fact, we, when we were investigating the case, we spoke to that other guy and he basically said, uh, yeah, you know, there, there was no damage to my vehicle at all. So we didn't call him. And actually, fortunately right. enough, the defense didn't call that guy either. Right. It kind of makes you wonder why they, they, uh, they didn't go track him down. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of those fortunate things that happened. I guess. Uh, um, Daniel, you talked a little bit about some of the demonstratives you guys used. Did you have any other good demonstratives that you can tell us about? Cause I always, I always love a good, uh, demonstrative, especially when you're showing injuries and things like that. Yeah, I think it's absolutely necessary on your surgical trials to get animations of the surgery procedure um, so that the jury can see how serious this stuff is. Um, it's one thing to hear it from a doctor and have a doctor explain it, but if he can actually put up the animation of the actual procedure and walk the jury through it step by step and the jury's watching this person and the animation be opened up and watching the muscles being put over to the side and the tendons being put over to the side and then the spine showing, um, I think it adds great value um, to your case. Um, yeah. Even though it can be kind of expensive, it's worth it. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that because you know so, a lot of times just reading a medical record and you, you see that they had a, a fusion you know, it's easy just to kind of gloss over that until you really take the time to explain, you know, what all is involved with that. Um, and, uh, and I think that's true for any surgery because, uh, you're right. I mean, just seeing it, it just changes everything about, uh, what you know about what this person had to go through. Yep. A hundred percent. Yeah. Well, and also just hearing about what can go wrong, you know, that's right. the, like, I, I actually, until I started, um, you know, doing plaintiff's work, I didn't know, I think like everybody knows somebody who had like a fusion or like a, a you know, it's some sort of back surgery. And I had like no idea how wrong they could go until I started seeing cases where they had gone wrong. And then, then they become really scary. I mean, that's why I completely identified with your client trying to do everything to avoid surgery. Oh yeah. Um, especially in that area. And I think from my experience, uh, either participating in tri many trials or even watching some trials, I think uh, on top of the animations, one really important visual is to just show some type of timeline of all the medical treatment, whether you do it as literally on a calendar itself and marking down on a calendar all the various appointments before the surgery and even after the surgery, or how we did it just like a timeline and literally put put out every single appointment. I think that's very, very powerful because again, you're showing the jury, look at all these appointments she went to, to try to get better, to avoid a surgery before undergoing the surgery, number one. And number two is, you know, part of the non-economic damages. Uh, it's not only, you know, physical pain and mental suffering. One of them is inconvenience. I mean, most people hate going to the doctor. It's not fun right. to go to the doctor. And pointing that out when you have, you know, like 75 medical visits after a vehicle collision and say, look at this, 75 times she had to go somewhere, drive there. It takes an hour to drive there and wait in the waiting room. 
and go see the doctor and then drive home. It takes like a whole day out of your day and doing that so many times, who the heck would want to do that unless they really are in serious pain and really are trying to do their best to get better. Right. Uh, putting up that visual, I think, is very powerful to a jury. I, I had that slide up in rebuttal, and it was the first trial where I decided to mention the Constitution and how it guarantees certain things, including the pursuit of happiness. Um, and I made the argument to the jury um, that the defendant took Belinda Stewart's opportunity to pursue happiness away from her. And instead, this is what she pursues now. And I pointed to the screen and I said, now she pursues to be pain free. Right. Right. Um, and so I think that's powerful. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, uh, spending time talking about pain and how it, it, it just affects every aspect of your life. Um, you know, whether or not you're, um, you know, get depressed, whether or not you're happy, whether or not you have good executive functioning, uh, you know, it, it, it really does just affect every aspect. And I think spending time walking the jury through what, what pain really means, not just hearing that somebody's in pain, um, is, is helpful as well. Yeah, and mentioning the constitution, I think will appeal to some of the conservative jurors. Yeah, as well. I like yeah that. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, but definitely, as you say, Steve, you know, talking about pain and what pain really is and how it affects someone uh, through their daily life and really trying to give as much of a detailed explanation of that uh, is critical. And, you know, you just got to slow down and try to describe it, you know, just hearing, oh, yeah, someone's in pain for three years, but then really like try to break it down for them and analyze that pain every day for yeah. 365 days a year and describing those non-economic damages to the jury in depth, clearly explaining it, I think really helps put things into perspective. Yeah, I, I thought in your closing, uh, I thought it was a great point when you were saying that, um, you know, there's a reason why like uh, dictators and, and uh, governments use pain, uh, you know, in order, you know, to, you know, to uh, torture people. And this is what she's going through. I mean, so it's uh, just a great example of, um, of, of, of how bad this is. This is basically daily torture. Yeah, exactly. That's literally what it is. And I think, you know, that analogy that I gave to the jury and explained to them, like literally she's in a prison of pain. Uh, she can't get out of it and she's trying to get out of it. Uh, those types of analogies um, I think sink in a little bit better with the jury than just saying, Oh yeah, it's pain, uh, that she has. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she's, she's a prisoner who's been deprived of her constitutional rights. <laughs> That's right. There That's you right. go. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I wanted to ask you, uh, did you have an opportunity to talk to any of the jurors afterward? And did they give you any, any feedback on what they thought about the, uh, the trial? Yeah, we did. Um, you know, we got some, definitely some uh, positive comments. Um, you know, some we still had ultimately some jurors that were part of that second panel that told us after that, hey, you know, giving millions of dollars um, uh, is not something that we would do. Um, so that kind of frustrated us a little bit with regard to that whole mini opening and talking about millions of dollars within Boisdier. Uh, jury selection prior, but you know that happens. Uh, you know the other thing that we great feedback was uh, how we basically eviscerated the defense hired doctors. I mean, they we clearly made it show that they are so uh, not credible. So that that was some good stuff. It's uh, it's so important to really care and love your client because the jury sees that. So that means spending as much time with them as possible going to their homes if possible, breaking bread with them if possible, because that stuff really shows, you know, every, after every trial, the jurors come up and they say, man, you really care for your client. That really showed. And I think that goes a long way in the deliberation room. Yeah. 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 I, that was definitely a comment that we got from a lot of them. But, you know, to me, it's like almost that comes, uh, it's a given. I mean, we spend so much time with our clients before trials, before depositions. I really, you know, try to either go out to their homes and meet with them and yeah. they come to my home even. I mean, Miss Stewart, wow, we spent so much time with her before this trial. 
Um, so, you know, she was almost like family to us and mm-hmm. that obviously uh, was portrayed to the jury and they felt that. So that goes a long way. I mean, with, with the jury at the end of the day. Yeah. I, I think, you know, spending time with your client at their home, uh, it, j- it can just be so effective in really showing you what they go through, uh, you know, because otherwise it's just talking, but once you're there with them and yeah. you see it and you see it, um, you know, it just changes, changes everything on how, on, you know, what they have to go through on a day-to-day basis. And, yeah. and you would inevitably get little golden nuggets that you didn't That's even right. know about. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And, and to that point, I think I used to go more often when it was somebody, when my client was somebody that was, was hurt, but had survived. But recently I started doing it, like even with family members in a wrongful death case. And the first time I did it, it was just, it was a logistical thing. Um, and it was easier for me to go to them than for them to get together and come to our office in Savannah. Um, but when I went, I was so glad I went because I saw their home and they basically had a, had a shrine kind of to their mother they had lost, like not intentionally, but a a shrine, but there were just pictures of her everywhere. Her presence was everywhere. And I felt like I got to know so much more about them and the person that they lost that I never would have gotten through talking to them, no matter how much time I spent with them. And you you pulled out your phone and started taking it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, but that's a great point. Yeah, it's not only the client, but, you know, speaking to those, uh, you know, general damage or non-economic damage witnesses uh, and spending time with them. I mean, again, with her son in this case, you know, he was a military background. He couldn't really open up to us emotionally over the phone when we would speak with him. So I decided, you know what, let's change this up. I actually invited him and him alone without our client, her son over to my house one Sunday night. And Daniel and I just had dinner with him and talked to him. And he finally was able to like open up, I think in that more home setting, uh, you know, over dinner, it really helped out. Uh, us out understanding he gave us some good nuggets about his mom that we then used throughout the trial um that is critical again especially if you don't have that many non-economic damage witnesses uh you really right. to find them and spend a lot of time with them as best as you can so i, I want to ask you a question and if you can't answer it's fine but did was there a pre-trial uh, offer on the case yeah so the most they ever offered us was two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Yeah. That's fantastic work. So, uh, you know, they basically forced us to go to trial and we were happy to do so. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Well, um, guys, this has been just a great talk. Is there anything else you want to make sure that our listeners know about the trial uh, that we haven't talked about? Um, I just want to reiterate again, you know, find those uh, friend and family witnesses and talk to them. Uh, you know, sometimes medical records might not be a hundred percent accurate. Um, so talk to your client about it. And, you know, just because a medical records doesn't mention low back pain doesn't mean your client didn't have low back pain. Uh, you need to find out the truth and the truth is from, you know, the people that are really experiencing it on a daily basis, your client and her friends or family here, her son. And that's how we were able to overcome those issues from the defense is, hey, we presented the truth. Forget about one medical record that they were, or two medical records here and there that they were trying to impeach uh, our, you know, doctors on. Uh, Go to the source and uh, that's critical. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing, if any listeners want our motions in limine, our PowerPoint examinations, our cross-examinations, we're around, we're available. Um, our emails are on the website. Um, feel free to reach out to us for help. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. No, that's great. And and you know, I agree. The the point about the medical records. I mean, I actually think about that. You, you know, we we've all been to doctors' offices where um, you know they're you're in a hurry or you're thinking about something else. So you you know um, either they're not taking it down right, maybe you're not putting everything in there. Um, but it, you know, it doesn't mean you're you're not in pain. And um, you know medical records are oftentimes, um, you know, and, and through no fault of, uh, you know, uh, of the, uh, medical staff, usually, um, it's just because there's a lot of patients there and a lot of people, you know, don't have a lot of time. And so they, they move people quickly. Um, and so sometimes things get missed. Yep, exactly. Steve, may I plug 
the Los Angeles Trial Lawyers Charities Organization. Go for it, man. It's an amazing organization that makes a positive difference in the lives of people in Los Angeles. Um, the organization focuses on education, children, survivors of abuse, persons with disabilities, and the homelessness. We're out here making a huge difference in the lives of individuals and that us trial lawyers do really care. Uh, more information about the organization can be found at latlc.org. And if anyone wants to come out and participate, please let me know. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I, and I should have mentioned that uh, I, I think you're on the board of the Los Angeles Trial Lawyers Charities. And I, and I, and uh, John, I know you're involved heavily with it as well. Um, so, um, yeah, no, it sounds like a fantastic organization. And uh, we're always happy to, uh, uh, to give uh, publicity to charitable organizations doing great work. So um, let me remind everybody who we've been talking to. We've been talking to John Teller and Daniel DeSantis from the Wilshire uh, Law Firm. You can look up John and Daniel at wilshirelawfirm.com. That's W-I-L-S-H-I-R-E, lawfirm.com. John and Daniel, this has been great. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah. So check those out. If you have a trial, you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. (laughs) We only need uh, positive commentary. We're fragile. Um, You can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go, and Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time. And hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening. <laughs>